Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to welcome everyone to a bonus episode of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Today, we'll be looking back 50 years ago to the first WWWF Supercard that was held outside at Shea Stadium in Flushing, New York. And to look back, as always, the man that went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting on August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm doing better than you, I think, uh, this morning. I think you had a little partying going on uh, over the last uh, 24 hours or so, reuniting with some friends. Yeah, I'm doing good. I am chipper. I am ready to go. I have high energy. And I'm ready to talk about this show from 50 years ago at Shea Stadium. Tim, it's good to see you, yeah. by the way. Hey, it's good to see you too, John. Yeah, I, I've had a little, uh, you know, when, when family comes to town, and especially the family I've had in town, they like to, you know, they like to indulge a little. And these aren't like, hey, hey let's go out at night and indulge. These are all-day indulgers. So, yeah, let's go come, come visit us at the hotel. We'll be at the hotel pool. And there's cocktails at the hotel pool. You know, we have to get lunch, cocktails at lunch. Come back, cocktails, cocktails, cocktails. So a lot of cocktails flowing here. It was a great time. But today... I'm a little older, and I'm I'm suffering for it a little more. I understand. I've been there, done that, my friend. So um, just let's tough through it, and we could talk about the uh, illustrious night 50 years ago. That was a game changer for me in a lot of ways. Before we get into that, I, I just want to thank, if you're listening right now, this episode came out on Patreon originally. John and I want to thank our Patreons, again, helping us make this show possible, helping us keep the lights on, as they say, and help keep the history of the WWE alive like no other show does. And we want to thank you for that. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber, what are you waiting for? New things are added every day, and there's a price point for everyone to get in. So come on in, join the community, join the family. John, you're always adding stuff to the Patreon. What have you added recently that we can we can tease to people to let them know, hey, look, there's new stuff here in the Patreon? Uh, I just put up a couple new photo sets, which are really, really cool from the vintage Madison Square Garden days. One specifically about Polish power, Ivan Putski. I have uh, a ton now of classic vintage WWWF television from 1975 and 76. Uh, so that stuff, the people are eating up each and every week. I put a new 
episode up uh, each week that coincides with what happened uh, in 1976 uh, right now. So uh, let's say, for example, September 30th, when we're dropping the show, uh, there'll be a uh, TV show that the WWF aired, uh, either Championship Wrestling or All-Star Wrestling. Uh, from uh, back then and we kind of took the liberty of cutting out all the matches in a way but left all the promos and interviews which were kind of the meat of the stuff uh, if you're listening on audio today so that's up there you know of course uh, we have a lot of changes going on with pro wrestling spotlight right now visual elements patrons get everything early like you said there are levels for everybody five bucks to get you in the door you get the entire archives of the pro wrestling spotlight you get all the shows in advance you get this show you get the archives of this show that's $5 a month. And then check it out, patreon.com slash John Arezzi. See the other levels. See which one fits you best. And uh, we appreciate your support. Absolutely. We love you guys. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't have the show. Let's get into the show. It's called Showdown at Shea. Shea Stadium, New York, September 30th, 1972. The attendance for the show, it wasn't that good. 22,508. Now, we're going to compare that to last month at Madison Square Garden. 28 days earlier was 21,819. Only 689 more fans came to Shea than the Garden. So that's a big thing. Back in 1972, the Mets who are a baseball team. If you don't know, if you're not in the United States, they're a baseball team that used to play at Shea Stadium. Their attendance at the time was around 27,000. So even you have the whole Shea Stadium to yourself, you still can't even make 27,000. So this wasn't the greatest supercar there ever was. It was in September. And if you don't know anything about New York, New York in September is very cold. It's not like Florida. It's not like Georgia. It's not like Los Angeles. It's not the place you really want to have an outdoor show. So we're really not sure why they did the show, but they decided to have a show outdoors. Maybe it was the last minute someone says hey i got this venue and put this together so this is how this card came about september 30th 1972 it was a cool night they expected rain maybe but there was no scheduled rain date so if you didn't have it this date it wasn't going to happen tickets were going anywhere from five to ten to twenty dollars fun fact about this richie found it for us there was a ticket stub from this event, and it said Bruno Sammartino versus Pedro Morales, and the ticket stub alone went for $130 on eBay last month. John, if you have one of those, I'd love to have it. I don't have one, unfortunately. I wasn't saving that type of stuff back then. I should have. But, yeah, I mean, that was a, a great little collectible, and you don't see many of those around for $50. No, and like whatever it went for, not $50, but $150, whatever it went for. Let's talk about the venue for a second because uh, this yeah. is a venue that's not around anymore. It was called Shea Stadium, originally called William A. Shea Stadium. It was They had football there, known for the Mets baseball. It opened in 1964, closed in 2008. Basically, capacity for baseball was like 55300 On August 15th, 1965, Big event there. The Beatles played Shea Stadium. And in August 23rd, 1966, the Beatles came back to Shea Stadium, and a young Johnny Rizzi was in the audience. So you have to tell me about this. You went to see the Beatles at Shea Stadium? Uh, yes, I did. I was fortunate. It was actually three weeks after my very first uh, Shea Stadium appearance when I saw the Mets versus the Pirates on July 3rd, 1966. I fell in love with the Mets on that day and with that stadium. And then my dad was able to swing some tickets for the Beatles. And we were huge Beatles fans in the household. My older sister and I, I mean, from watching on Ed Sullivan uh, in 64 and just loving everything about the Beatles. And when my dad uh, said he had secured tickets 
we went crazy. He had uh, four tickets and my older sister obviously had one of them and she didn't want me to come. She wanted to take her friends. So there was a big fight in the household. So initially I wasn't going to go. And then one of her friends couldn't make it or got ill and she was going to ask another one. And I started a tantrum and my dad is like, Johnny's going. And that was it. And I got to go. And so that was an amazing night. It changed my life. The seats were great. There were about three rows in back of the Mets dugout. The Beatles were stationed on second base. And it was just one of the most memorable nights of my life. And that place was rocking. You couldn't hear yourself. They only played a 30-minute set. Uh, The screams were unbelievable. I was in awe watching the girls all around me scream, faint, try to jump on the field. Uh, This girl pushed me off my chair. She jumped on my seat. She bit through a pencil while she was screaming Paul's name. I mean, it was um, it was quite an experience. But that was my um, introduction to Shea Stadium, July 3rd and then August the 23rd, 66. And I do have a ticket from that show. Oh, you kept that one. You kept that one. No, I actually got an authenticated uh, framed autographed ticket from uh, Sid Bernstein, who promoted the show. Sid Bernstein, of course, a famous promoter. And uh, uh, there's another special story about him. I don't know if you have time to get into it. But I took (laughs) I took uh, when Paul McCartney opened up City Field with this concert in 2009. I had bought first row tickets for that concert. And I was donating two of them to a charity called the Songs of Love Foundation up in New York. And the uh, owner, the founder of the uh, Songs of Love was like he was in conversations with Sid at the time. And Sid had had a falling out with Paul McCartney. And he goes, do you mind if I give Sid the ticket? You know, I was like, Sid Bernstein, the guy who brought the Beatles to Shea Stadium. And he said, yeah. And would you mind picking him up in Manhattan and taking him to the show? What? So um, I was I met him at. Uh, a pizza place, a very famous pizza place in Manhattan with my nephew and Carla Locco, uh, who was uh, my friend who I started Band Twango with. And I managed him 30 years ago. Anyway, we were, in, we were with Sid Bernstein uh, and we took him to the show. And the guy was disheveled. And I don't know why he wasn't talking to McCartney anymore. You know, he smelled like urine, but he was fun to talk to. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and Sid is no longer with us. Uh, but uh, that's just an interesting side note story about Shea Stadium, the guy who brought the Beatles to Shea, and the guy I took to City Field to see Paul McCartney in concert, the one and only Sid Bernstein. And okay, a little a little thing here. Uh, City Field is now the Shea Stadium. So Shea Stadium, yes. they tore it down. They built a new stadium where it was uh, around right. where it was, and now that is that is called City Field. That's a, that's a great story. No, I did not know that, and I was surprised that they only played thirty minutes. Was did any other bands play that night? Uh, there was a like eight or nine opening acts. Really? Yeah. The Circle, which uh, had a song called Red Rubber Ball at the time. I think the Ronettes. I mean, there was a lot of great talent there. It was emceed by uh, uh, Cousin Brucey initially. And then Ed Sullivan brings the Beatles on. Uh, it was an amazing uh, experience for me and uh, one which I'll never forget. How was the audio? I hear always that it was the it was horrible. Was, yeah. Okay. <laughs> It was terrible. Huh? And then the PA set up. I mean, you, 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 you're, you're 55. They're using the stadium PA, which there was. But, you know, these were the first concerts ever at a baseball stadium. Yeah. So, you know, it was all rudimentary stuff uh, and you could you couldn't hear them. 
They couldn't hear themselves because all the screaming that was going on. But it was historic. I mean, it wasn't the very first time they were there. It was the second time they were there. And the second show wasn't even completely sold out. There were seats in the upper deck. And you got to remember around this time, August 23rd, 66, this was the second to last live show the Beatles would ever do in front of the public. Uh, They did one more show a few days later at Candlestick Park, and that was the end of it for them. Uh, until they did that rooftop concert uh, on the top of Abbey Road uh, Studios. Uh, but yeah, that was it, because there was a lot of controversy during that last tour with comments that John Lennon said that the band was more popular than Jesus. And then that was it. Everyone turned on them in the States for a while, and then they couldn't hear themselves, and they figured, we're not touring anymore. We're just going to concentrate on our music in the studio. So I got to see the Beatles' second-to-last show ever which is kind of uh, historic uh, for me and a piece of history. Oh, huge piece of history and a huge piece of history for Shea Stadium. Uh, Later on in years when it was closing down Shea Stadium, a little fun fact, uh, the last concert was there. I think this is correct. The last concert was Billy Joel, and he brought Paul McCartney out. I was there. You were there for that one too. Okay. Look at you. You I was there. Funny little story there. I was with my cousin Jimmy. And I was with uh, the same guy, Carlo Locco, who was, you know, a dear friend of mine. I'd gone to the two nights in a row there with Billy Joel's last play at Shea. And that night, the night that Mc- there was rumors that McCartney was going to show up. So I'm sitting there, but my cousin's getting me nervous about something. Carl is always he was always ranting about something. And I was like, you know what, guys, I'm going I'm, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. So I left before the encore and I didn't get to see McCartney come in on that helicopter and finish up the show because I was just I was just agitated with the the company I was with that <laughs> you night. Could've, you could have walked to the side. You could have walked someplace else. You'd have to leave. <laughs> uh, I I just have I have no uh, you know sometimes I snap a little bit and I just kind of make these rash judgments. I was at the final game at Shea Stadium right before they tore it down. It was the very last game of the season. And uh, that was the day that they were honoring Shea Stadium. It was going to be this big closing ceremony after the game. The Mets had blew a, a lead, uh, and that was up to them to win that last game to get in the playoffs, and they blew it. So I got up and left, and I didn't even see the end ceremony of the closing of Shea Stadium because I was pissed. And I got up and I walked out of the stadium. I am never so, going with uh, you to anything. Yeah, never gonna yeah don't ever get anything. me pissed about anything because I, I, you know, I would just walk away. And uh, unfortunately, now I look at that thing and my sister called me. I was at I was flying back to Nashville uh, that day because uh, I lived here, obviously. And and my sister called me and she was crying. Oh, my God, you just see Piazza and Seaver Club. I was like, no, I left. What do you mean you left? You had tickets. You were there. You left. I was like, yeah, I left. I uh, I was watching it at the bar <gasps> at the airport. <laughs> oh, John, 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 John. I'll never. And my friend I went with, my friend Steve Scaglione, uh, who I shared season tickets with for many years and dear friend of mine. He he was with me that day and he couldn't believe he was like, "You're what do you mean you're leaving? I said, I'm getting out of here. They blew it. They're not in the playoffs. I'm disgusted. Goodbye. But you're not going to see the end. I was like, I don't care. Okay, I'm still in shock about that, but we'll we'll get to that yeah. in another episode. But one, uh, but what? one other tidbit about Shay. Yes, give me it. Concerts there. I was actually there in 1970 uh, for the Grand Funk Railroad Humble Pie Show. It was the day that Jim Morrison passed away. I was 13 years old. It was my first real experience with 
you know, my sister was a hippie for one, and she was, you know, Woodstock and all that. Uh, I was 13. I remember I wore these pink velvet pants and a crazy shirt, and I'm 13 year old sit, sitting there, and people are passing joints around, and it was, you know, it was like this hippie land, and I was just so, so in my element in a way, even though I wasn't a hippie, I just kind of blended in. And when this beautiful, like hippie girl, like no bra, she's all in a flower child passes me this, this pink joint. And I'm like, I, you know, and I partaked in all of that. And it was kind of like very cool. My sister sees me, you're 13 years old. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) you're like, you're like uh, She was five years older than me. I was like, you know, so what? You know, I, I take pot out of your drawer all the time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's why Shea Stadium concert stories. And I, I, I was there for some very historic events throughout uh, Shea Stadium. But we digress. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We digress. Let's get back into wrestling. That's what everyone came here for. Yeah, um, brother. Yeah, brother. Let's get let's get back into it. The showdown at Shea, the WWF Shea Stadium, New York, September thirtieth, nineteen seventy two. John, now, how did you get the tickets for this? Because I heard at the time they were only being sold at the box office of Shea or at Madison Square Garden. Took the train to Shea Stadium the day they went on sale with my friend Frank Favalli. And waited and got the tickets. Oh, wow. So did you think like this one, you get ringside again because you're so early? Oh, yeah, yeah. I figured that. And then, you know, saw a section, whatever it was, 32B. And, you know, I didn't know what the sections were or anything like that. And uh, showed up that night and discovered there were no seats on the field for that. So that was a big disappointment. Where was the ring? The ring was stationed uh, on and around between the pitcher's mound and second base. Okay. Uh, George the Animal Steel was supposed to be on the card versus Toro Tanaka. They were listed and they were canceled, but George will make an appearance later on in the show. Let's get to match number one. Little Beaver and Little Louie defeated Pee Wee Adams and Sonny Boy Hayes. Eight minutes, 25 seconds. Yep. Uh, that was the opener, and it was raining and drizzly. It was a horrible night. It was windy. It was cold, and uh, just wasn't into it. You know, wasn't into uh most of the stuff that took place here is a regular card, in my opinion. But they, but the little guys did what they did. They opened up. They entertained. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were filing in and just getting comfortable and getting used to the uh, cold, drizzly, miserable night that it was. The guys that were on that show in that match, Little Beaver, he appeared in the six-man tag at WrestleMania three. He debuted in 1949, retired in 1987, and he was like my favorite little guy performer back then because he was one of the first ever, and he was just very historic and a great little worker. He, he really was. Uh, little Louie also in that match was in the WWF 1994 Survivor Series as Queasy, as a member of Jerry Lawler's team as they face the Doink the Clown team. So that was quite uh, an unusual match. Long careers. I, I do remember Little yes. Beaver. I think he was slammed. I think he was slammed by uh, King Kong Bundy in the yes. six-man tag. Yeah, taking a slam from Bundy in 87. Wow, that's that's a long career also. 
Pretty amazing. Uh, let's go to back number two. El Olimpico defeated Chuck O'Connor five minutes, 15 seconds via DQ. Yeah, that was a big surprise uh, with that DQ and El Olimpico beating Chuck O'Connor. That just didn't make any sense at all. It, it just didn't. It was kind of like you just looked at it and you was like, what? Chuck O'Connor, of course, uh, also known as Big John Studd, and he and Killer Kowalski were the executioners. They were the WWF Tag Team Champions in 1976. But yeah, Big John Studd uh, getting a loss there, which was a shocker. I remember Studd from the 80s, and then he went into like the 90s, but that's that's a pretty long career starting in the 70s. Um, being in New York in the 70s, he must have been making, making pretty good money because it's a major market. Yeah, he was uh, just getting his, uh, getting his feet wet in the business, you know, making some dough. Of course, he came in under the tutelage of Kowalski, which was always a great person. If Kowalski's training you, you know, you know that this guy is going to be a, a star if Kowalski gets behind you. And he did the same thing for Paul Levesque later on in Killer's uh, career. But yeah, I mean, uh, Big John said always one of my favorites back then. Tall, different. He had the charisma. You knew he was going to be a star. Match number three, Jack Briscoe defeated Mr. Fuji 14 minutes and seven seconds. Uh, John, in Jack Briscoe's book from uh, Scott Teal's Crowbar Press, he claims, he claims that he never bladed. And a couple of times he bled because of, you know, unfortunate circumstances. But is that true? Do you think that's possible in that day, in that time? Could he have not bladed in his career? Hey, it wasn't uh, like it was, uh, you know, you had to. If you weren't comfortable with gigging your head and cutting your head open, you know, there was no promoter under the sun that was going to force you to do it. So I do believe that Jack didn't actually uh, blade himself and he might have cut himself hard way, uh, which that's inevitable with anybody that's in the business for a long period of time. But yeah, I mean, that was kind of a uh, interesting uh, revelation that was in the Scott Teal book. But I do believe uh, that part of it, because I believe Blassie rarely bladed himself. There were some guys that just didn't want to scar their foreheads up. And I think Blassie was one of them. You know, I never asked Fred, but there were more than one occasion where I saw Blassie bleed, where I know that he wasn't he seemed to be squeezing something into his scalp. And then kind of rubbing it. And then with the sweat, it appeared to be blood. It was, you know, I never saw Fred have a gusher. So, I mean, he might have gigged himself, but I, I think it was on rare occasions he might have gigged himself with matches against the Sheik. But, yeah, that's an interesting topic to discuss. I mean, the blading and, or non-blading and who chooses to do it or not do it. Uh, <clears throat> Captain Malabano. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think he bladed. I don't think he bladed. No, oh, yo, no. Captain, no, of course not. Well, Jack Briscoe was taking on Mr. Fuji, and Mr. Fuji known as, you know, Mr. Ribber, too. He was a big ribber back in the day. Do you have any good Mr. Fuji rib stories from back in the day, John? Rib stories? I know he was a good ribber, but I do have a Mr. Fuji story, which is um, really interesting. Uh, it was after a garden show. It was, uh, we were initially at the Savoy Bar. That's where all the wrestlers hung out. Uh, and uh, I was in there with George Napolitano, who I was with, all the time. Fuji and Tanaka in there, Andre the Giant, Bruno. I mean, it was just like a full contingent of guys in this little, little tiny pub. And it was getting a little crowded. And uh, George was like, why don't we just go somewhere else? And so there was a restaurant across the street at, inside the Edison Hotel. And uh, lo and behold, George invites me. And I'm with Mr. Fuji, Professor Tanaka, and Andre the Giant. And we go to this restaurant, this little bar restaurant across the way. And and uh, they sent some fan or something to a deli up the block, one of these 24-hour delis, to buy cold cuts, like sliced roast beef, like pounds of it. 
and uh, ham. And, you know, the guy comes back and they lay the food out. They open up the packages. Everyone's drinking beer and they're not eating bread, but they're eating this, these cold, the cold cut meats. So I was like picking a piece of roast beef off the, you know, the sliced package with Fuji, Tanaka and Andre. And Andre was drinking like a mad, you know, Andre just drink it one beer after the other, after the other and Fuji there. And they're telling jokes. And and I'm just sitting there like stunned because I'm actually sitting next to Andre the Giant, who's eating roast beef and drinking beer with Mr. Fuji and Tanaka and George. And it was kind of a memorable night for me. OK, I got I got to ask because I've always I actually. I was in this situation one time working up in Boston. I was working at a bar called Champion Sports Bar in Boston. That's where the wrestlers would go afterwards. I was actually DJing there. And lo and behold, what happened one night after wrestling? Million Dollar Mad and Ted DiBiase comes in with Andre the Giant. And they were in there, and I tried to get over to him. And he had that guy, his his assistant Tim was with him, and he kept everyone away. Yeah, so I never got to shake his hand, never got to meet him. I was pissed. Um, I saw Tim later when I was leaving. I was a DJ there. I go, dude, I work here. I just want to say hi. He goes, no, man. I said, well, just do me a favor. Just tell him I'm a huge fan. And he really made a lot of, you know, made a difference in my in my life when I was growing up. I really enjoyed watching him. He's like, yeah, I'll do that. But I never got to be with him. So I'm so envious that you got to sit with him. First of all, did he sit at a booth? Did he sit at a table? Did he sit on a chair? We had a round table, if I remember. Uh, it was like a round table in, in the restaurant and it was fairly large. And and that's where we sat. We weren't at the bar. We were at a table. You were at a table with him. Uh, did, did you have a conversation with him at all? Did he just mean like you're there, but you're not part of it? You know, keep waiting. I was there. He knew that I was OK because I was with George. Yeah. You know, George was always that buffer for me. If I was with George, everyone knew that I was cool. I mean, I didn't engage in conversation. I was just kind of smiling and just being part of it mm. for me. And I was so ultra shy in a lot of ways back then around the boys. I was still kind of like in awe, even as a ringside photographer, even somebody that was, you know, someone who was kind of backstage and stuff. I'd still get butterflies anytime I took a picture backstage at the garden or tried to do an interview it was just kind of this i'm with these guys that uh, you know i revere yeah so I, I was always kind of shy back then now there's always a rumor that when andre goes with people he pays who paid i don't remember okay right. i have no clue all right i didn't i know that <laughs> Uh, I just, I, I just, I love the idea of you sitting down with Andre. So you sat down to eat. How long do you think you guys were there for? Like, I've heard legendary stories of him, besides drinking, just sitting for hours eating. We had gone there. I mean, it was already halfway through the night anyway, and uh, I, I recall being there for an hour or two, no more than that. Okay, nothing extreme or anything like that. Sunrise. No, and no okay. crazy, you know, drunken Andre stories. Uh, other than there was a fan that well, as we were leaving, there was a fan that went up to him and he just didn't want to sign. And he he'd had a few and and uh, he kind of was a little menacing towards this guy. Chased him away, chased him away pretty quickly. I think it was Donnie Liable. No. <laughs> <laughs> that Donnie. Let's go on to match number four. Gorilla Monsoon defeated Ernie Ladd in 20 minutes with a referee's decision. Yeah, that was a strange one, uh, you know, because they're no ju they're judges, but they're not judges. Once in a blue mood, they would make this silly uh, referee decision when they went to a time limit draw. It should have been a draw, but then they gave the match to Monsoon uh, because of the referee's decision. And I thought that was kind of odd, you know, back in the day. And I believe that uh, Monsoon put Ernie in one of his finishers, but didn't get the pin. Uh, it was the airplane spin. And uh, that was kind of Monsoon's favorite 
uh, finisher back then when he was uh, mobile. I remember seeing Monsoon put that on Muhammad Ali. I don't know where yeah. it was, but I saw In Philadelphia. Video. Okay, okay. J June of '76, I was there. You were there. Okay, what was I was, I was one of the only three photographers at ringside for that. George, of course, and a guy from AP, and I have these spectacular shots of Muhammad Ali in the dressing room and uh, in the ring with Monsoon, because uh, I was tipped off that he was going to be there. George and I were there, and the Grand Wizard, Ernie Roth, took us to the outside of the Philly arena in the back, and he's like, hope you got a lot of film in your cameras, boys. Uh, Ali is going to be here in about 20 minutes. And I was like, huh? You know, <laughs> you have and pictures? All, yes. Uh, I have a lot of pictures of him in Sakuna in the back. I have pictures of him laughing in the in the dressing room. I have pictures in the ring at ringside, pictures of him and Vince McMahon. Um, I have an amazing uh, collection of photos from that night of Andre, of uh, Ali uh, with that monsoon angle. And um, I also have something uh, for patrons that is up there. I did a little Matt memory five minute story about the night I, uh, the night Ali invaded the WWF on TV. So that's for patrons at patreon.com slash John Arezzi. It's up there for all to see. And those photographs are there oh. with the contact sheet of all the pictures. And yeah, yeah. but anyway, that oh, was, uh, I got to look, I got to check this out on the Patreon. Uh, love that. You know, the little stories like that are, is why I love about doing the show. Cause I did not know that you were there for that match and you have pictures of it. And you, that's, that's just amazing. So I'll definitely go check that out on Patreon. Let's go to match number five, Sonny King and chief Jay Strongbow defeated captain Lou Albano and the spoiler four minutes, 28 seconds. Yeah, this was kind of a blow off. Albano uh, was feuding with Chief J. Strongbow at the time. The spoiler was a top contender. And uh, any chance that they would have to put Strongbow in the ring against Albano uh, was always magic. And this was short and sweet, 428. Uh, Albano bladed heavily, as he always does. And that's the way the, the match ended uh, with him blading. And, of course, Captain Lou, I mean... Uh, dear Captain Lou, a great friend. He was uh, actually trained by Arnie Skolin, which a lot of people may have not known. Uh, he made his debut in 1953, and he finally retired in 1995, so he was in the business for over 40 years. I, I can't remember it. I just had a brain fart. Do you remember he was in a movie with Joe Piscopo and Danny DeVito? Yes, I loved that movie. It was called Wise Guys. Wise Guys. I remember he had the Nutcracker. He was uh, Frankie the Fixer. He was... Uh, uh, and the first scene of it, he was getting his toenails clipped by somebody and the toenail <laughs> shot out and hit Joe Piscopo in the eye or something. Uh, it's a classic funny movie and it was pure. It was vintage Captain Lou. Captain Lou. Miss Captain Lou. Great guy. Frankie Acavano was Frankie Acavano. Yes. Uh, let's go to match number six. NWA Women's World Champion, the Fabulous Moolah, defeated Debbie Johnson in seven minutes, 27 seconds. John, NWA, WWWF, what's it with this? The WWWF was part of the NWA. They were a member of the NWA officially at that time. So Moolah coming in, uh, that title was called the NWA Women's Championship at that time. It wasn't until 1982, 83, when Vince Jr., or he don't like to be called Vince Jr., but Vincent Kennedy McMahon bought the promotion from his father and then uh, uh, quit the NWA, and then he took over the country. And then the women's title was then turned into the WWF women's title. Uh, that, that's interesting. I did not know they were a part of it that long. So far in this Shea Stadium show, it's been about 60 minutes of wrestling. 
60 Minutes Wrestling. That's important because of the next match coming up. The last match of the night, the heavyweight championship match. Champion Pedro Morales took on challenger Bruno Sammartino, and the match went 75 minutes and 5 seconds. First of all, you want to go back for a second and help us out, John? Where was this coming from? Why were they the two you know, baby faces wrestling against each other? Well, it started months, not even you know several. It was, only, it was a very quick thing. Uh, whoever decided they were going to, I don't know how long in advance they planned this for one, because it seemed to be haphazardly put together. So I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't Vince McMahon senior and decided that Bruno was facing Morales, but they started an angle on one TV taping, which was about a month and a half, maximum two months before September 30th. And it was Bruno and Pedro teaming up on television, the TV taping of three shows, Bruno and Pedro beat a team put together of jobbers. Second week, same thing. And then it was announced on the second week that the following week on TV, they're going to take on Fuji and Tanaka for the championship. So no buildup except for two TV matches. All these three matches were taped in the same night. And during that tag team match, Bruno and Pedro uh, were both blinded by Fuji and Tanaka. Uh, Fuji and Tanaka threw salt in their eyes and then put them together in the middle of the ring. So they were blindly swinging, and all of a sudden they're connecting with each other, and they're brawling in the middle of the ring. So that was the buildup. That was the angle. And and then, you know, the following week, it's like Shea Stadium. Bruno San Martino is going to be taking on Pedro Morales in the match of the century. And it was like, holy shit, it's going to be great, great, great. And then all the anticipation, and, and then it was just kind of like air came right out of that freaking balloon on September 30th when they were in the ring together. So the match went, they said it went 75 minutes. If you go back and you put together the match, it looks like it lasted maybe 65 minutes. And at the end of it, it was just a draw. How did they end the match? It was just a draw. They were in, I, I don't know if there was a finishing move. They tried to do some high spots towards the last three or four minutes to, you know, to get, excite the crowd, you know, false finishes and such. But it just stopped. I mean, they weren't brawling. It might have been a backbreaker. Bruno had Pedro in or Pedro might have had a finishing move on Bruno. I don't even remember. There's no footage of it out there that they've ever released. But the bell rang and it was a time limit draw and uh, people were not happy. During the match, uh, there's reports that people booed Bruno. Is that true? Yes. Uh, Morales got a spattering of booze, too, from the American fans that were there. Because you got to look at it. You have the Italian hero and the Puerto Rican sensation, right? And they both had their fan bases, which was evident when you go to the Madison Square Garden. The, the Puerto Rican fans, Pedro was beloved. Pedro couldn't lose because they were so behind him, there would be riots. And Bruno had his hardcore fanatical following. But on this show, it seemed to be Bruno getting more booze than Pedro, and it was happening more throughout the match. Maybe the fans were just booing them, both of them. Yeah. They were both getting booed. Maybe the whole show was getting booed because it was just uh, it was just so anticlimactic. It's the last match of the night. This is the one you've been waiting for. And so far, yeah. the card has been it's been okay. It's it, there. There was nothing really much in that card. You want to go? Oh, I was looking forward to this. I think the Albano spoiler match was maybe, if anything, that was a rivalry match you can watch or look forward to. But everything else seems like you said it was all thrown together. And then there was a run in by George Steele that wasn't really a run in at all, was it? Uh, he tried to get into the ring because his match uh, never took place. So. Uh, you hear this commotion that all of a sudden Steele runs out of the dugout. And before he can get 50 yards to the ring, the security officers got him, put a, uh, a billy club against his throat and just dragged him back into the dressing room. 
so that was kind of the most, that was the biggest pop of that match was when Steel tried to get into the ring. I do remember that being the biggest pop of the match. And how close did he get? Did he really even get close? Did it interfere with the match in any no, way? No. So it was a waste. It was just kind of like he was on the show. People expected to see him. You know, he brought a little. Maybe, maybe they, maybe they made that decision mid-match. It's like, boy, this crowd is asleep. Yeah, get out there and rile them up. You know, they had it. Maybe that was something that happened. It was just horrible, man. It was. Um, I hate to say it, but it was a really shitty show. And the card itself, as you said, it was nothing out of the ordinary. It wasn't like this big extravaganza like WrestleMania had become to uh, be. It, it was just a regular. It seemed to me a regular house show, with the exception of briscoe coming in which was kind of uh, unusual and that was kind of exciting uh but other than briscoe uh coming in that was uh, there was nothing else on that show that was even the briscoe match didn't sell tickets because it was just for the hard hardcore fans like me but it was just a normal card except for the main event if you look at it and i don't understand why they had a georgie animal steel match against professor tanaka even though it didn't happen where was that going? What are you doing here? Aren't they managed by the same guy? Was George Daniels? No, it was Wizard and um, it was uh, Albano. Might have they might have been? Um, yeah, you know, I know that Steel was managed by Wizard and Albano at two different times. Uh, so uh, yeah, that was heel versus heel. Didn't make sense when you saw it on the card. It never happened, and maybe it was never going to happen. Maybe they just put it all on there to sell tickets. Oh, bad guy versus bad guy. Who knows what their philosophy was? It seemed like whoever booked this show was on LSD. <laughs> and maybe something left over from the Beatles concerts. Who knows? Um, you never know. We were talking about this uh, before, and we wanted to run down the match. If we could rebook this Pedro match, uh, can you do Richie's? Richie actually wrote in his what uh, Richie Richie Garcia, the other producer on the show. If Richie was booking this match, how would Richie produce it? Well, uh, Richie's booking versus Bruno versus Pedro for the first 15 minutes of the match. It's 50-50. And after about 15 minutes, Bruno loses his footing, maybe because he slips because of the weather. And then Pedro dominates the match for the next three minutes. And just when you think Pedro's going to win, out of nowhere, Bruno small packages Pedro for the one, two, three. Bruno is the winner. He gets the belt. Bruno walks over to shake Pedro's hand. And puts the belt around his waist. They hug, and everyone goes home happy. That's good. That, that's that, it's already better than what they had. Already better than what they had. Now, do you want me to go next, or you want to give yours? I would like I'd like to save you to the end because you're usually the best. You go ahead. Okay. Okay. Because I've been thinking about this one. Okay. Get ready. No faces. Okay. Don't give me any faces. I'm not even gonna look at you. I read this. Okay. I'm going to go the same way. I'm going to go with Richie. what Richie said. First 15 minutes, back and forth. You know, show what you guys can do. Put in some of your moves in there. Show, show a little style like that. But at the 15-minute mark, who runs the ring again? George the Animal Steel. And he gets even closer. He gets so close that he's actually almost ready to interfere with the match. So he's outside, and the referee jumps outside to hold him. And then security comes, and people are trying to hold back George Steele. Well, Bruno and Pedro stop wrestling. You know, being respectful guys that they are. Pedro goes to a corner, and Bruno starts yelling you know over the rope at steel and stuff like that he's like hey get out of here you don't belong here what are you doing get out of here. i'll take care of you another time and then you see captain Lowell bano and mr fuji come out to help get george Steele out of there now if tanaka is with them fantastic but i for some reason i think he didn't make his plane ride or anything so he wouldn't be there so it'd be fuji 
and Captain Alabama, they run out and they're trying to get him back. They're trying to push him back and they're acting like that and they're talking to referee and everyone's yelling and Bruno's hanging over the rope. And just then, Mr. Fuji throws salt in the eyes of Bruno San Martino. Oh my God, we're going to see the same thing all over again. He goes down. There, George Steele jumps in. Fuji jumps in, Albano comes in, and they all start beating up on Bruno. They're beating up on Bruno, and who jumps in? Well, then Pedro jumps in to help out. And there's a doll- they're all going off, and now they throw some salt in, in Pedro's eyes. So now the bad guys are getting a lead in this, and they're just beating on each other, beating on each other, beating on the guys. Who comes to save them? Da-da-da-da-da. Gorilla Monsoon comes in, and the whole thing goes wild. Well, well how are you going to end like this? It can end like this and like, oh, we'll have to watch it on TV? Or it can end like this was maybe get the microphone to Bruno. And he's just mad. He's just mad at these guys, and he wants them. He wants them bad. I want you bad. I want you guys bad. And then him and Pedro are okay because we're buddies again, and Gorilla's there. Now we're pushing to the next Madison Square Garden show. This is my show. You have a six-man tag in a steel cage. Bruno San Martino and Pedro Morales in a little handicap match versus Tanaka and Fuji with Captain Luobano in a steel cage. Another match, Gorilla Monsoon versus Georgie Animal Steel. That's how you push it to the garden. That's how you bring it back. That's how you make everyone happy. That's my opinion. What do you think? Uh, fantasy booking at its finest, Tim. Thank you. Um, of course, a couple of things could never happen. There was no cages allowed back then no. uh, at the garden. But it's okay. It's okay. It's fantasy booking. Uh, and, and the other thing that I, would, that I would shoot a hole in what you're saying. Hole? With a Donnybrook like that or Broadway like that, it should have been a no- it, was, it should the referee disqualified everybody. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. Is that what happened? Yeah. So that was the finish. Okay. So that makes sense. But I'm going to go back for a second about Richie's booking because I don't think we got the crust of what he was saying when Bruno small package Pedro for that one two three. The referee announces Bruno is the winner. Mm-hmm. The referee hands Bruno the belt, and then Bruno walked over to shake Pedro's hand and puts the belt around his waist, allowing Pedro to keep the title, even though Bruno small packages him for the victory. That is the best finish that that could have happened that night. That would have made everyone go home happy and keep Bruno and Pedro as friends. We missed Creative that. booking, that is a magnificent booking of that match. So what I was going to say for my finish, Richie blew it away. And Richie blew you blew yours away as well. That was that was premier booking on Richie Garcia's part. I would have booked it differently. I mean, I would have just had a winner. I would have just had a winner, no matter who it was, Bruno or Pedro. I would have I would I would have wanted a clean finish, no matter what happened. Uh, it would have been much better than what they did. Yeah, it, it was terrible. And what I didn't like about this or the card, and I want to get your rating on the card after this, is that nothing was really moving things ahead. This was a card. It didn't end up saying, oh, you know, now we have a new rivalry or now we have a new this. It was just – and there was nothing. It wasn't a climactic thing besides you saying yeah, – But they had the revenge match uh, October 15th. Bruno and Pedro soundly defeated Fuji and Tanaka. So they were together in a tag team match in October, which we're going to be covering October 16th, 1972. So that was a way for them to get the revenge uh, and, and clean it up yeah, and finish yeah. it off and do the blow off. But for me – you know, it was a very disappointing, just kind of a synopsis. My dad was upset that he was driving me, my buddy, to Shea Stadium. He said, I don't know why you're going to this bullshit. It's raining. It's cold. What are you doing here? 
We get there waiting online to get in. We're by the entrance where the guys come in. Professor Elliot Marin, who was a historic figure of fandom back in the garden back then, comes out. All right, going to be a draw. I was like, what? What do you mean? It's going to be a draw. Time limit draw. It's going to a draw tonight. And I was like, there's no way, you know. So I had that little suspension of disbelief or I still tried to believe that it wasn't predetermined. And when Professor Elliot came out and said that and when it actually happened, that was the confirmation that wrestling was all predetermined. And it was shocking for me. Okay, let me ask you about this. So you're in line with other fans. You're not in like a press line or anything. You're in line. and this- We're with some hardcores Okay, back in the day, even though I'm still young and all of that. It was where the uh, the wrestlers were coming in. There was an entrance there. It, was, it wasn't like uh, regular fans. We were sitting around there shooting the shit. And, and Professor Elliot, who was the guy who brought the ring jackets to and from the ring, that was his role. Uh, and he came out, going to be draw. And that was it, man. That changed your life, didn't it? Well, it kind of, you know, you knew, but you didn't know. But that was kind of like, that's 100% confirmed that uh, this is uh, totally predetermined. Why did this guy do that? Because he was an insider. He was a smart, he was smart, as they said. He would, and he was the one that would smarten, you know, he smartened you up. That was all it was. I mean, it was kind of like almost when Tom Burke, uh, the the legendary uh, ringside writer for Ring Wrestling Magazine, dear friend of mine, uh, 1974 WFIA Wrestling Fans Convention, where I won the fan club of the year for Fred Blassie and the best monthly newsletter. Tom took me in a room. He goes, John, you ever hear the birds and bees? And I was like, yeah. I was like, this guy's not my dad, you know. So he kind (laughs) of. smartened me up he him and there were i think mel phillips was in the room too um and dave brzezinski from detroit and eric goldenberg there was like you know you're gonna be one of us you know so here's the inside of the business that's when i first heard the word kayfabe that's when you know how the guys shake hands and what's at work and some of the inside terminology uh so yes so that's what elliot marin was doing in a in a in another way a braggadocious way where I was formally educated into the business uh, in 1974, which is a couple years later. So he wasn't doing it meanly. He wasn't doing mean-spiritedly to ruin your night. He thought he was just talking to smart fans like him, and he was tipping them off on what was going to happen. Well, as a night of wrestling, the first supercar for the WWF, uh, how would you rate it? It was horrible. All right, that's an F. That's an F. Thumbs down. Thumbs down. Way way thumbs down. And when would they try this again? How how long would it take them to recover this? Recover seventy six. So seventy six. Ali versus Inoki. Four years uh, was the the draw. Ali versus Inoki, and then Bruno had broken his neck with Stan Hansen. That was their uh, revenge match. Yeah, and then it was Chuck Wepner versus uh, Andre the Giant. Yeah, and then they did it again a few years later with uh, Zabisco and Bruno. So let, let's go back real quick. When you said the Ali, because that was Ali, uh, Antonio Inoki. Inoki. Inoki was from Japan. How did yeah, you it watch it? Yeah, it was closed circuit. It was, a, it was so, closed circuit. So what did they do? They put a TV out there or what? it was on the scoreboard? Yes, yes it was a TV. They had a big, uh, shitty-looking TV. Interesting. I just That's just amazing to me. That sounds really cool. Um, just different. Just different. So 
you got to remember, like, what year this was, 1972, how much things have changed now, where now in arenas, you don't even watch the match even when you're live there. You just look up and see the big jumbo scrawn, and you can, you can see it so much better watching it that way. This is, this is the, yeah. the birth of this stuff. This is the birth of a Supercard, and it didn't quite go the way Supercards, you know, went, but it's a, it's a nice try. Just there's a lot of holes in this card. Yeah, it could have been done way different. It could have been pre-planned. It could have been done much better. It could have been done earlier in the season. There's a lot. I mean, all I know is it seemed like it was haphazardly put together over a two-month period of time. It was executed poorly, and uh, it, it didn't do much for anybody that was there. That's why they really dropped it really quickly. They didn't even really focus on it, yeah. even in uh, TV matches afterwards. Well, that's it for us. A showdown at Shea, September 30th, 1972. Our next show, back at the Garden, October 16th, 1972, headlining Pedro Morales and Bruno Sammartino get their revenge on Professor Tanaka and Mr. Fuji. And Ray Stevens is coming to the WWF. Ray Stevens, who I remember from the 80s when he came in and he uh, beat up on uh, Superfly Jimmy Snuka. But that's down the road. Hey, once again, we want to thank Scott Teal. The book is called Wrestling in the Garden by Scott Teal. And Michael Kenyon. From crowbarpress.com. And, of course, if you're listening to this right now and on Patreon, thank you for all your help. But if you're not on Patreon yet, how can people find it, John? Patreon.com slash John Arezzi. Five bucks get you in the door. That's all you need to know. And now you can go find those pictures of Grill Monsoon and Muhammad Ali, which I'm looking to go see because I'm really excited about that. They're all on Patreon, my friend. All on Patreon. For John Arezzi and Rich Garcia, I'm Tim Poutre. We'll see you next time.